Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our show is sponsored by MailChimp, which celebrates creative empathy in the world and creative chaos on the web. On each episode of The Observatory, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. So, spring is finally here. And with it comes new life, blossoming flowers, leaves on the trees, the songs of migrating birds. And yet at the observatory, everywhere we look, we see death. Designers wrestle with death, treating it as a design problem to solve. And a couple of recent events have shown the uh, tragic consequences of what you might think of as design failures, starting with that horrible plane crash in the Alps that caught your attention, Jessica. Well, it turns out that after the crash of the German Wings flight coming from Barcelona on the 24th of March, one of the big issues that has come to light is the fact that the cockpit door was locked. They locked that door for a reason, right? Yeah, I think I think since 9-11, the airport security certainly has been heightened and uh, airplane security has been heightened. So this was an effort to protect the people flying the plane from any kind of unwanted um, entrance by somebody who was going to cause trouble. But it goes both ways. Yeah, it's sort of like what you're supposed to keep the hijackers out of the cockpit, but then uh, the thing that the unexpected thing happens where one of the pilots actually needs uh, needs to be intervened on, and uh, you can't get to him because he's locked the door himself. So why is this a design problem, or why is this a design issue? It's a design problem because you're building physical things into the. The, the physical makeup of, the, of an airplane that are meant to override either human error or human ill intent. And I think, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, is that sort of a um, something that we do as human beings almost uh, reflexively? I mean, it really po- it points out the cockeyed optimism of design, right? Yeah, like yeah. design to so many people is kind of like a happy pill. Well, you know, we're surrounded with uh, things that we've invented that are supposed to provide benefit to us you know and yet um almost every one of them you know sort of within it seems to kind of hold the capacity of its own you know its own potential destruction and the destruction of people around it you know i think what, what there's a reason why um when ralph kaplan did that amazing book called by design and the subtitle is um i think why there are no locks on the bathroom doors of the hotel louis the 14th this uh uh, situation for in this hotel where adjacent rooms occupied by different parties share a single bathroom. And so the problem is if you go into the bathroom from your door and lock your door, you lock the door that also leads to uh, the person in the next rooms. Then you leave, you unlock your door, and then you forget to unlock the door that permits your uh, neighbor to get in the bathroom that you share. And so what they did in that hotel was there are no locks. Instead, there's a uh, a kind of rope or cord around each doorknob. And there's something just so beautifully, elegantly reciprocal about that device. What we yearn for is some sort of supremely elegant solution that's both anticipating the immediate problem, but also uh, thinking through the uh, uh, the problem that we're not foreseeing. But this is, the thing that it makes me think of, Michael, is Donald Norman you know, who wrote all these books Mm, about the behavior of objects. And there have been a lot of books that have come out in recent years about objects themselves. And and Norman, I think, is somebody in particular who looks at the behavior of objects and how we anticipate and imbue objects with 
behavior. And I think that now living in the age of embedded technology, that's only going to be more the case. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a funny example, you know, you drop your iPhone in the toilet. I did this a few weeks ago. I am personally responsible for this ridiculous flaw in human judgment and cluttiness. But in fact, the thing falls and you yell at it. Now, it's not (laughs) its fault. It's your fault. And yet what he, he writes about continually is the fact that we start to expect drones to protect us. We expect doors to protect us. We expect hot plates to protect us. We expect our iPhone to tell us what to do or our watch to tell us what to do or our our Siri to tell us what to do. And so it's a kind of a tricky thing when you think about the designer's responsibility to imagine an outcome that is not perfect. And it's... I guess it is the designer's responsibility to imagine those outcomes. But I think um, so often we're, as designers, given a limited brief, you know, design something that will do this. And um, it's really, it falls upon lawyers to actually imagine the unanticipated outcomes. And uh, um, a lot of times their input is just viewed as uh, inhibiting by designers, you know, because they're worried about the bad thing that will happen. How great it would be if designers could sort of anticipate that and kind of keep liability law out of it completely because they've so cleverly figured out a way to um, balance all the uh, pluses and minuses for every solution. The question for me, what comes up in moments like this is that in an age when everyone is a designer, and I think technology levels the playing field in such a way that we are. But so what happens to designers? They have to elevate themselves or distinguish themselves or differentiate that which they are doing to create value in, in the kind of larger scheme of things, in the gestalt of design. And what happens then, to come back to the theme of death, is this kind of hubris. And what's <laughs> happened recently is that designers are trying to get ahead on, of death. Now, I'm not sure whether this is the fact that we're all aging and it's the boomer population that makes us think that death is something we better get a handle on, or whether we don't want our lawyers to get involved. Or, or, what, uh, or, or whether it's just a market opportunity, you know. Just yet another market opportunity. So, so Michael, did you happen to see this story on IDEO and Paul Bennett uh, and the idea that they're taking on death as uh, what they call another design, just another design (laughs) challenge? Um, Yeah, and it is in a way about the charming kind of arrogance and hubris of designers where you just sort of think, you know, let me at it. There's nothing I can't design. How many designers? You call it it charming. I call it vexing. (laughs) Vexing, yes. No, it's, um, it's, it is sort of like the way designers like to think. And I, and, uh, and I, and in this case, um, you know, it's not so when, when you hear about someone, uh, you know, trying to fix death as a design challenge, I think what most people are imagining are, um, you know, people in labs trying to cure fatal diseases, right? So we can all live immortal lives. And I think um, there, there's something as a as a, as an area of sort of like using design as an area of kind of, uh, you know, almost philosophical inquiry, the idea of, you know, it's not necessarily fixing death by eliminating it, but it's like coming up with ways that we can cope with death and the inevitability of it, our own and our loved ones and people we've never met and everyone in the whole world. And um, and I think it's just an age-old way of getting a handle on it. In a way, you know, haven't people been, quote-unquote, designing death from... Uh, 
you know, you know, every religion has its rituals that associate. Which is why, which is why the hubris of assuming <laughs> that that cultural innuendo is that a designer would understand that. Okay, first of all, let's just talk about the fact that designers are not primarily educated to understand the empathy and the science oh, and hey, the understanding you, have, of, of hospice, Jessica, of Jessica, end of life Jessica, care. Jessica, have you been to a uh, design conference lately? Every speaker gets up there and will first unveil some massive problem. Death would be the least of them. You have global warming. You have like uh, world hunger. You have uh, all okay. subsequent episodes we might do. But but, but then it, <laughs> then inevitably after showing these horrifying charts and graphs and maps of the world and everything, they'll say designers are uniquely qualified to address these problems because they mysteriously have either gained or just been born with this tremendous sense of empathy, which permits them to kind of anticipate what other human beings will uh, think when they're shown when they encounter different design experiences. Now I sort of am kind of cynical about this and certainly if you've I'm met so glad to hear that <laughs> if you've met a, uh, a serious kind of like end-of-life uh, hospice uh, 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 caregiver you know that that's a real 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 special skill that um, you also know that designers break out in hives when they walk into any of those places where the color of the Afghans can just make you just completely <laughs> want to self-immolate I speak from experience here but I want to come back to this idea of design and death because I'm, I'm you know I travel a lot I speak to students a lot I've seen no shortage of thesis projects in the past few years of of students doing you know bereavement apps of of students looking at um, uh, burial shrouds that are biodegradable where your really? loved one could be re- reborn wow. as a plant. I I, wow. I saw a project where someone was looking to pulverize the remains, which in fact in funeral parlance are called cremains because they're cremated remains pulverize the remains of your loved one and mix them with jewels so you can wear your loved one around your neck. So some of these things are almost laughable. Um, and yet, in a way, they're sort of endearing because they're designers being designers, right? They're trying to, they're ob- there's a kind of object permanence to the focus of that philosophical inquiry. It's when they're looking at the future of life itself and the future of death. It's when they're imp- sort of implying that experience design, which is a field I have some questions about, but I will not get us sidetracked on that right now. But okay, so maybe it's really just kind of decorative, right? We're looking to actually get rid of some of those ugly Afghans and make things a little bit more kind of design life affirming. Um, but it's the idea that it's it's a sort of a larger landscape of death and dying that is is within the realm of what the designer can do. And, and I just want to add one thing. So there was a uh, graduate student a number of years ago, a few years ago in Toronto named Michael Massimi who, with his colleague Andrea Charisse, came up with the term thanatosensitive. What? Thanatosensitive. Go on. Thanatosensitivity is the field of looking at the relationship between death and design. So if it has a word, it's going to be explored by design students and researchers and makers and potentially sponsors who will believe that designers, in fact, have something to impart to the death and dying process that takes us way further from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and hospice and all the other people who told us what to expect. Now we not only know what to expect, we know what it's going to look like. Yeah, and um, um, I think... A lot of it just has to do with um, just using whatever skills we actually possess or imagine we possess just to kind of demonstrate 
or create the illusion of mastery over this ultimate kind of fate that awaits us all. Boy, this is heavy, but um, but that's sort of what it is. And people just have these different ways of um, of, uh, of coping with it. But, you know, the other thing that, that bugs me about so many of these exercises in thinking about death is that it's, and maybe this, this is pragmatic and I'm just being a, a sourpuss here, but is that it's all about the survivors, right? It's about your bereavement. It's about you missing the person. It's about you wanting to recreate your memories. It's about you wanting to hang on to something. It's not about the person themselves, right? It's it's not really about about. It's much more myopic. It's much more self autobiographical than biographical. And in the sense that uh, somebody said recently to me that one of the reasons um, uh, our producer Blake Eskin actually mentioned this to me that one of the reasons he thought that selfies were a thing uh, that had so much currency in our culture is it's the one thing that's just you, right? Like you do not look like anybody else, and so why not kind of recreate this? It's an interesting kind of myopic cycle about how we remember people. And it makes me think, you, you went to the 9-11 Museum recently, didn't you? And, and that, I think, is a kind of an interesting sort of visual testament to the lives of people who are not here to tell their own stories. Can you, can you talk about that for a second? Like a lot of New Yorkers, I'd followed the um, rebuilding of what came to be called Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan after uh, 9-11. And then when the um, museum and memorial finally opened to the public, I didn't rush to go down there, partly because I thought it still, even that much later, felt it was uh, a bit too soon. But I had some family visiting from out of town, and they had some things they wanted to do, and that was one of the things I asked for. So we went down there. And I have to admit, it's, uh, I found it very, very impressive and like, extremely moving and done with real respect for everyone that died there and really makes an effort to bring those voices those people through images through through words through audio through video brings them um I don't want to say back to life, but really makes them alive for you once more. Regardless of how, how much distance you think you put putting yourself between you and those days, it sort of comes back to uh, life for you. And as you're going through, you see there are um, you know teenagers and young adults there who couldn't, some of whom may not have been born, some of whom were just uh, you know just you know pre-kindergartners then who are kind of encountering this not as uh, a memory of an event that still may be fresh or not in their minds, but of, you know, history. How is it different from, say, Ralph Applebaum's uh, museum in Washington, the Holocaust Museum, which was really the first time someone had really tried to conquer and really capture something so just enormously incomprehensible that affected so many innocent people and, and do it visually? How's it different? I have to admit, the most extraordinary aspect of it from, or that I found as, as a designer was that there's something about it being right there at the site. The museum is built basically in part of the foundation of the World Trade Center, so you keep encountering vestiges of the columns that held it up, the wall that held it up. There's just something so potent about being right there on the site and seeing it. I think the, the designers of the Holocaust Museum in Washington had a different uh, challenge dealing with something that was further removed both in time and uh, geographical space. And to bring that to life, I think, requires investing every person with a uh, keener sense of uh, empathy than they would have, you know, than they than than you necessarily would expect in New York. Now, what's interesting? Right, yeah, and, and maybe maybe one of the reasons why uh, Applebaum uh, developed that interesting idea to have everybody 
take a name when they come in the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so by selecting a person with whom to identify, you go through that experience uh, in a kind of isolated state of really remembering one person's field of vision, one person's kind of lens on this this catastrophe. Um, and, and I think you're right that, that there must be something really, really powerful about being at the World Trade Center, which is now reborn as this memorial. Yeah, and, 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 and beautifully done, I thought. If there's a... Um an aspect which is underplayed for, well, I'm guessing our predictable reasons when you go there is there's not a whole lot that's done to kind of like put the, the nature of that terrorist act in a larger context. The actual fact of what happened that morning is so overwhelming and so compressed. It isn't, you know, it isn't like the slow growth of the Third Reich in, you know, in uh, in Germany in the 20s and 30s and sort of, the you know, the, the history of anti-Semitism in Europe that goes back for centuries. You know, it's just a sort of like, you know, the, this time that morning these planes took off, you know, and no one knew anything. And, you know, one of the most poignant moments in the whole thing is they have this little display of, you know, the newspaper, what was happening that morning, what, what was on the front page of the newspapers. It was a primary election day in New York. It was a beautiful uh, day. And just sort of like the before and after was so abrupt. It wasn't like there was a slow buildup, you know, and the whole thing is just kind of like just has the the force of compressed immediacy. See, now that I get that kind of understand trying to understand the the epic uh, quality of death in, in something so much fr- shrouded by yeah. by tragedy and making it visual and making it memorable and making it this kind of evocative experience for somebody in terms of the space of the museum and the the program architecturally of those rooms and and yeah. what gets said and what doesn't get said that i understand being yeah, the yeah, purview yeah. of the design yeah, and it, that's specific and i think there's a there's a humility in that that i'm 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 not seeing in some of these other projects that we talked about earlier today i just i find this this is exactly where design can be not not a differentiator, but I think a, a, a capable of articulating and and adding nuance and, and almost theatrical without being exploitative. Certainly without being without being exploitative, but being being sensitive and, and understanding. And I, I think it's a it's a bigger issue about the philosophy of how we approach design and design thinking in terms of the lives yeah, of other yeah. people that that I'm I think I'm missing when when it's treated like an absolute. The difference is Jessica, you sort of it, if you're dealing with death as a concept. You know, that's one thing. But if you're dealing with someone dying, that's an entirely different thing. And it has an entirely different meaning and entirely different significance. And the um, uh, the specificity of it, even when it's writ large, as it is in a, in a museum like that, uh, multiplied over and over again. The fact that these are in like what they really drive home to you, that these are individual people, one by one, who each had a life and that life uh, for most of them um you know, was full and full of promise uh, when they woke up that morning and uh, and not a one of them would be home for dinner, you know. And there's something about the, 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 right. the reality mm-hmm. of those people as opposed to the theoretical notion of this thing called death that we may have had, each one of us has had different experiences of directly, indirectly, all sorts of different ways. Um, and I think the, um, uh, the question then ends up being how can you take the particular experience that of one person's death and figure out some meaning for it that has to do with the larger question of what is death and how can any of us come to grips with it. One of the most surprising and touching things in the uh, museum is a uh, piece by an artist named Spencer Finch who 
uh, gave himself the task of painting the sky as it was that morning, the morning of September 11th, 2001. And uh, New Yorkers will remember that it was like, you know, this perfect fall day, like literally not a cloud in the sky, not even teensy tiny clouds. There were no clouds in the sky. And there's something really, it's, it's, it's like so surprisingly abstract you know, and, uh, and evocative. And a lot of people who come away from it will have mentioned that that was really moving for them. Just done on these ordinary sheets of paper that are just attempts to, um, to, to remember that morning as you, as you would remember the people. So it's an act of memory and displaced from the specifics of the actual human beings, but doing it through this sense of color. It's really surprising and really quite beautiful. Uh, well, now you're speaking my language. What caught my eye about this, this story was how blue has recently become such a compelling uh, container for all sorts of uh, opportunities, many of them in museums. Uh, the Beinecke Rare Book Library at Yale several years ago did, um, really just last year, did a, uh, an exhibition on great blue treasures in their collection. There's an exhibition that opened uh, at the beginning of 2014 and actually runs till November of 2015 in Vienna at the Kunsthalle called Blue Times. Uh, which looks at Facebook blue and looks at the blue as the color of melancholy and the color of romance and, and uh, the fact that more than 80% of the po world population identifies blue as their favorite color. There is a, uh, coming up this week, the RISD Museum has done uh, a, a, an issue of their very uh, beautifully and elegantly curated occasional, I think it's quarterly magazine uh, called Manual on the Color Blue, in which they've asked a number of artists and writers to look at things in their collections that are blue and uh, sort of opine on them and make work about them. Spoiler alert, I was part of this, uh, in the invited posse of artists who were, were doing work with the Grizzly Museum on this. Does, does blue mean something? Blue is one of the primary colors, and if for some reason it has just this sort of evocative uh, meanings that go beyond the fact that it's just this color. It was, uh, for, you know, artists back to Rembrandt, of course, have, have been before the, the history of ecclesiastical art looked at blue. It has different currency when you look at sort of the history of, of Greek and the Greek and Roman Empire. But more recently, it's the color of the Gaulois package and the color of the Tiffany's box, right? So you can really look at high culture and low culture and everything in between. And I think that's why it's the color of the sky. It's the earth from space. It's macro. It's micro. It's, uh, you know, it has class differences, and yet why would it be the, the world's most favorite color? Is it, is it because people have blue eyes? Do we make it personal? Uh, it, it, you know, it's just something that I think uh, provides an opportunity for a kind of exploration, both philosophically and formally. Well, well cl my clients have always loved blue. When I'm doing, you know, brand identity work, I mean, if you want to just save some time, just propose the logo in blue, and usually they're, they're most people will be quite content with that for the same reason that everyone owns blue suits and blue clothes. Uh, uh, you know, there's so, there's just something about it that just is sort of like the, the thing that doesn't really seem to, uh, um, that people, I don't know, do people take a kind of comfort from it, do you think? Well, that's apparently why uh, scrubs are primarily blue in hospitals. Wow. That they've wow. done psychological studies that people who are obviously, you know, might have elevated heart rates because they're in a panic over being hospitalized derive some comfort from looking at nurses and doctors in, in a color that actually has been proven to be easing and comforting to the soul. And, and what would be the worst color for scrubs, you suppose? I'm thinking fluorescent orange. <laughs> like, 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 yeah. You know, it's, it is, I mean, it is funny, sort of a... Um, you know, when I'm 
when I, I think like a lot of designers, you do design work and you're kind of making these choices that, you know, you have to admit are kind of inherently arbitrary or sort of have no provable sort of, a, um, you know, uh, Actual, yeah, there's no empirical data that says this yeah, is the answer. Not enough. There's not enough. And it's so tainted by the context every time. You can't quite figure out what it is. But, like, you know, what typeface signals, you know, modernity? What typeface makes things look old? You know, it's all just things we've come to associate these things with. You know, if if, if I was uh, uh, opening a really, really expensive, you know, store on Fifth Avenue to sell really expensive jewelry called Tiffany's, and I was hiring someone to design my packages for the first time, I don't think, and they said, well, here's the big idea. We're going to make them all the same color. And I'd say, go on. And they say, here it is, it's blue. And I say, I, I'm liking what you're saying. Then they say, it's this particular shade of baby blue. And I would just immediately, you know, I'm sure there'd be people in the room that would say, well, that's fine for, you know, baby gifts for baby boys, but you can't give a baby girl something in light blue and you can't give an adult woman something in light blue. And, um, you know, so that, that simply won't do what else you got yet. Um, you know, if you hand someone that little blue box, uh, they know something really special is inside it. That's not, that's partly because I think blue's comforting. And it's also because we've kind of people who, who are into stuff like that have come to associate that level of luxury with that particular shade. And, it's by and because it would right? be, because it would be remiss of us to get through an episode of our podcast without mentioning Paul Rand, <laughs> Paul Rand, when he was working on the American express logo, looked to Tiffany's blue as an immediate cue for money. And it, it's an interest. It sort of, you know, it, it makes you think about the fact that designers make decisions that can't really be made in a vacuum, and that visual things are contextual things, and that culture and race and politics and weather can intercede. But at the end of the day, uh, Tiffany's is a really indelible color. And you think of that particular blue, that robin's egg kind of blue. It's not quite pastel. It's not quite saturated. It's the color of a sky, maybe on not a perfect day, but a pretty nice day. And after this really long winter, I think we'd all be happy. To see a Tiffany's blue sky, or have a box with something really nice in it from someone. So from you know, anyone, he, from anyone, really. <laughs> Happy spring to everyone! The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. If you go to that website, you will see that the background is indeed what color, Jessica? It is blue, Michael. It's blue. You can find very soothing, very comforting. <laughs> There's not a promise you'll be soothing, comforted by everything you read there, but perhaps you will be able to find some succor at designersover.com. So please visit it. You can find links there to things we discussed, including John Muelm's article on how designers are attempting to design death. Between episodes, keep up with designers over on Facebook and on Twitter, and let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to the Observatory on SoundCloud on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. A big thank you to MailChimp for sponsoring the observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you next time. 